Hello and welcome to an hour of calming silence from Romaniacs. Because just like the government's preparedness briefs for a no-deal Brexit, the one they decided not to put out at all, we've decided that this week's show would be too upsetting for you to hear. In the words of the Sunday Times' unnamed source on that story, people would shit themselves. And we can't have that. So please relax with an hour of quiet contemplation. Well, you're still here and so are we, so we might as well do a podcast. I'm Andrew Harrison and we've got exciting news because we're delighted to have a new regular joining the show. Nina Schick is an in-demand political journalist and Brexit specialist. She's worked for Open Europe and on Emmanuel Macron's successful campaign for the French presidency. She's half German and half Nepali, which is a lot more interesting than the rest of us. And she's fluent in everything. You may well have seen Nina on BBC, Sky and uh, CNBC. She's a hot signing for the transfer window. Hello, Nina Schick. Welcome to Romaniacs. Hi, thanks. Thanks for coming on in. Um, Don't let Naomi beat you up and steal your dinner money as you are the... No, we're BFFs now and we're already practising writing I Heart EU in our textbooks. This is what we want on the, on the, back, of the, yeah, the back row of the class. Uh, Nina, you've been working on, in Berlin on Germany's response to Brexit and we're constantly told uh, you know, they need us to buy, their, to buy their cars. What is the real mood over there? Which we never hear about. Well, yeah, I can, I can verify that the German car manufacturers are busy hammering down Merkel's door. No, that's utter nonsense. Brexit <laughs> is not a priority at all. And I think... As far as Berlin is concerned, they are looking over the channel and they're quite bemused by what's happening here and they don't know how to understand it, really. Yeah. I mean, what is the kind of... Is, is there a diagnosis that they're making of, of, of our policy at the moment? I think that what has happened when it comes to Germany in the context of Brexit is a mistake that many British leaders have made going as far as Margaret Thatcher when she assumed that the Germans' love for the Deutschmark would mean that there would never be a single currency. And she was so shocked in the 1980s when Helmut Kohl turned around and said, you know, that there, there were plans in place to have a single European currency. And that's something we saw with David Cameron mm-hmm during the renegotiation as well, when he thought that Angela Merkel, when she talked about renegotiating Britain's place in the EU, he he interpreted that as Germany giving Britain a special deal. And that's simply not the case. And it's simply not the case now in the Brexit negotiations as well. I know a lot has been said and made of how the German car manufacturers and Merkel would give Britain a special deal. And it's simply not going to happen because for the German economic, strategic and geopolitical priorities, having a strong, coherent EU is more important than ever. And particularly now, when you look at the geopolitical picture, when you look at what's happening with the Western alliance, mm. when you look at how Donald Trump has you know, got a particular kind of special venom for Germany and Angela Merkel, Brexit is not a priority. And insofar that it is a priority, it means that sticking, you know, keeping the EU coherent and strong is even more important than it was before. Fun times. Also with us, showing Nina where the toilets are and how to sneak out for a cigarette without the teachers noticing. It's Naomi Smith, you just heard her then. She's Chief Operating Officer at Best for Britain, personal capacity only, of course. And she's working hard for a people's vote, which is looking bit by bit, week by week, more likely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, We've seen a couple of polls in the last week that have been very uh, encouraging. A Sky poll uh, with 78% of people saying that Brexit negotiations are going badly uh, and uh, a clear majority now in favour of having a referendum on that final deal. So among your little bits of good news this week is that James Chapman, the former chief of staff at Dexiu, now thinks a referendum with an option to remain is inevitable. Is this, how significant is this? Is it a little, not a little grain 
in the collapsing sandcastle. Yeah, I think Little Grain is probably the best way of describing it. James quit his role at DexEU well over a year ago, probably about 18 months ago now, um, and has been extremely vocal ever since, whether on Twitter, uh, in various different articles, all talking about how disastrous this government's um, handling of Brexit is. So I don't think anyone's holding the front page over him coming out <laughs> and saying this. Um, it is always, of course, worth listening to um, a former inmate about the two goings on inside the circus. Inside DexEU. Also this week, we hit Interstellar Overdrive with this week's guest. She's the Labour and Cooperative MP for Walthamstow since 2010. She's the scourge of payday loans companies, a supporter of the centrist Labour group in progress, and a critic of Jeremy Corbyn. But most importantly, she's an indie rocker and nothing's going to stop her. Stella Creasy is the most prominent wedding present fan in the Commons. Hello, Stella. How are you? Uh, well, to be fair, I'm only the, the only wedding presents fan since Andy Burnham became mayor of... Uh, Manchester, because he was the other big Widows oh. fan. Did so. you and Berno used to go and see the Widows? I, well, that, no, worse than that. When when Andy couldn't make it and he was actually being and doing important things as a shadow education secretary, I brought him the t-shirts. So. Oh my god, <laughs> what size is Berno? He's, a, you know, he was a good fan and he recognised the band name, so that's the main thing. Fantastic. Have you been to any good gigs lately in your indie trials? Oh, I was at the Cure at Hyde Park the other week. That oh, yeah. was pretty good. Although, obviously, big big controversy about the fact they didn't play Love Cats, which you know. But they're not playing Love Cats. Cats is Love Cats in a, I know, but Love Cats in a in in Hyde Park in summer, mm. it, it felt right. So obviously it felt like an admission. But they did they did some of my, you know, just like Heaven, all the, the close to me. Yeah. Um, you know, as the MP for Walthamstow, have you yes. had anything to do with E17? I, I do actually. I, I know Brian. He's, yeah. a, he's a very sweet man. He's had a lot of difficult things happen to him. He has, hasn't he? Poor old and, Brian. Uh, baked I potatoes. try my best yeah. to help him. Yeah, because he's he feels like. A, a, I found out the phrase the other day of the living institutions. So um, various people in America have been voted living institutions in their towns, and I feel a bit like Brian is a living institution for Walthamstow. So I try my best to help and support him, and I know he's very passionate about his community too. Good on him. Good on him. Now um, you are known as a, as a very active person on social media. You've been. Did my mother tell you to say that? No, um, it's, it's screamingly obvious. Um, and you've been the target of, of, I think, just terrible abuse across the board. Um, well, they said I have tried to ban her from Twitter, but she still gets on there. Yeah, yeah, well, from other people apart from you. Um, what do you think about this, this proposal this week that trolls could be banned from holding public office? Because I'm not sure that the average sweaty guy in his mum's basement dreams of being an MP <laughs> or a councillor. Do you think that's, it makes sense? I think it's sense. a reflection of the fact that people will be held accountable because the online and the offline aren't different look the, it's not twitter that makes people behave badly it's that person themselves so yeah. if you think that's an appropriate way to contact somebody online you're probably not going to be an appropriate person offline yeah. um I, i'm not one of those people who believes that somehow you know online forums like facebook or twitter should be a safe space for people to let off steam because the people they're letting off steam with then live in harassment it's not free speech if 50 percent of the conversation is in fear of their life and if you are sending rape threats and death threats and bomb threats to people you wouldn't do it offline. Why on earth would you do it online and not be held account for it? Yeah, it's one of those things that kind of recurs on the show, the idea that Twitter in particular has become so toxic that it's almost as if there's a project out there to drive reasonable voices off Twitter. We do a lot on the show on Twitter because you have to, but a lot of it is just batting away bad faith arguments mm. and people are just trying to turn the atmosphere of the whole place intolerable. Uh, I mean, are we talking about our colleagues over in St. Petersburg and Vladivostok? Because there's definitely coordination of this stuff. Mm. And, you know, I see it in my own Twitter feed. I think people forget with MPs. I mean, if you're doing it properly, and I have to say I hate it when people put like their... They they tweet in the third person and somebody else puts their initials at the end. Because I think the whole point about Twitter, about Facebook, is it's interactive. Mm. But then if that is that person, for me, as much as the volume as the violence, I had 92,000 tweets within uh, eight weeks, and that was a quiet two months. So it's all on my phone. It's me doing my own Twitter. 
Twitter, my own Facebook, you can't keep up with it. And the volume is a deliberate thing as well as the violence. That's wrong And also, yeah. if only if it was just, um, you know, a guy in his sweaty underpants doing it, some of the most vitriolic and nasty stuff um, that I receive, and I mean, you know, I have nowhere near the profile of MPs who, you know, particularly female MPs, you know, daring to have both a political opinion and a vagina. I mean, you know, deserve everything we get, right? Standard. Um, You know, it comes from people in other parties, in other causes. They're often middle class. They're often educated. They're often employed people. Trolls really do come in all guises. You know, it isn't just the the, the pastiche of this bloke in his vest behind his being a keyboard warrior. I think also think it's really important to say, so people often say to you, don't feed the trolls, just don't react. And I think, what kind of message are we sending that there's a certain volume of this that you should just soak up yourself? So I will often... I'll go back, I'll sometimes send people kitten pictures, I'll sometimes make fun of them, <laughs> and I will block people because I want to send a message. I meet a lot of young campaigners, especially young women, who have fantastic ideas that would change this country for the better, but they basically say, I see what happens to you and I yeah. don't want to stick my head above the parapet. Yeah. And if we say that some of this is the heat mm, of the kitchen mm. and somehow you should you should expect it, then we're basically normal and we're making it the problem of the people getting it rather yeah. than saying, actually, the people doing this are a problem. Mm. I think the companies themselves actually have a very strong commercial imperative to deal with this. One of the, the challenges of people like me, and I was one of the first people along with Caroline Criado-Pez when we first started seeing this on Twitter and we were getting a, a campaign for a woman on a banknote, is to get the police and the CPS not to see this as about malicious kind of behaviour and people writing particular words, but targeting people. And mm. it's, a, it's a harassment offence. And to recognise yeah. that if you said to somebody, stop, if, if I said in a pub to somebody, actually, I'm sorry, I don't want to speak to you, I would expect the landlord to say, look, she said no, you need to, to back off, otherwise you need to leave. At the moment, what happens is everybody looks to the companies only to do that. Yeah. Mm. Some of this, if that person continued to hassle you and followed you out of the pub, you know, you would expect the police to intervene. Mm. And the police and the CPS, I still think, have a job of work to do to recognise the connection between online harassment and yes. offline risk and just basically assess the violence that people face. I've had people who start online hassling me who then turn up in real life and trying to explain to the police it's not that they sent me a single tweet it's that that then escalates and yeah. therefore they need to assess that risk is the challenge we've still got to do well we're going to be coming back to look at uh, several things related to that on this show including fake news and the unfolding vote leave campaign scandal facebook this week revealed the targeted ads which vote leave sent out in the run-up to the referendum and they were highly tendentious to outright lies we're going to be looking at them a bit later plus the cabinet burying their own no deal contingency plans apparently it's okay to trust good old British common sense before the referendum but not afterwards because we're likely to fly into a panic and could Brexit mean the return of ID cards by the back door these and other fun topics after this important reminder from Naomi there are loads of good reasons to support Romaniacs on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. Patreon backers can get show-stopping Romaniacs t-shirts, smart Romaniacs mugs and hip Romaniacs tote bags, all perfect for making a statement in the office or on the street, plus discounts on tickets for all of our live shows. And now there's an extra reason to sign up. Every Monday on Patreon, um, our supporters get an exclusive column by one of our panel, Ian Dunt, Ross Taylor, Alex Andreo, Dorian Linsky, or even me covering one aspect of Brexit that we couldn't squeeze into the show. Sign up and you won't have to wait until Friday for your fix of Romaniacs. Visit patreon.com slash Romaniacscast to find out more. And don't forget that the last few tickets for Romaniacs Live in London on Wednesday the 12th of September are still available at leicestersquaretheatre.com. Come on down to see me, Ian Dorian and Alex in live podcasting action. We've even heard that a few regular listeners might be meeting up before and after the show so you can put a face to those Twitter handles. That's Wednesday 12th of September. Get your tickets at leicestersquaretheatre.com. 
now. Just because all the MPs, except Stella, have taken their bucket and spade to Blackpool, it doesn't mean the Brexit news is going to stop. Last week, as I mentioned, Facebook finally revealed the targeted dark ads that Vote Leave used in the referendum campaign, and they were a shocking bunch. The campaign repeated claims that the UK pays £350 million to the EU each week, even though it was discredited by the statistics watchdog. They also claimed that Turkey and Albania were on the brink of joining the EU, even though they aren't and weren't. Other ads said, we're paying Turkey a billion pounds to join the EU. The EU blocks our ability to speak out and protect polar bears. And the European Union wants to kill our copper <laughs> with a giant teacup threatened by a great big blue EU fist. Most of the ads didn't mention the EU or the campaign at all, but were simple data harvesting clickbaits. None of them were identified as coming from Vote Leave. The campaign group Fair Vote is preparing a class action suit on behalf of people whose data was harvested illegally. Now, Stella, this all came out in the DCMS report, which mm. concluded there's a crisis in our democracy. It talked about the relentless targeting of hyper-partisan views, which play to the fears and prejudices of people in order to influence their voting plans. Is this something we can regulate our way out of? You're just talking about the platform's responsibilities. Yeah, and actually, I think this is a really important lesson for people because this is not new. Uh, We saw this happening in Ireland with the recent referendum on abortion rights to the extent that Facebook and Google then intervened to suspend adverts. So there are ways that the companies can be involved. And I think there are lessons we can learn from what they did in Ireland there. I also think this is a really important point for, frankly, some of those people on the left, right? Because people keep saying, if we had a people's vote, then the right would use this opportunity to split the country even further, that they would use this idea that somehow this is a a break on democracy. I think what these adverts show, and what we've seen in other countries, is the right is doing this anyway. There is already a targeted, coordinated attack on progressive values, not just in our country, but around the world and they're using similar tactics so whether it is the referendum uh, and, and, and Brexit or whether it is women's reproductive rights in Ireland we're seeing the same patterns of behaviour the same types of advertising the same types of targeting of people and I often say to people who then challenge that and say well you know um, we can't have a people's vote because it would, would encourage it and say, actually, look, they're not going to stop. They're going to mm. keep doing this. They're going to keep doing these underhand tactics. Now is the time that we have to stand up and not let that define for us mm. what action we will take. Nina, the DCMS report, amongst the things it says, is that we need a social media auditor. We yep. need an actual institutionalised auditor. What do, what do you think about that? Absolutely, but I think Stella hits the nail on the head when she says that this is actually a much bigger problem than just Brexit. So mm. I actually work with the former Secretary General of NATO, Anders Fogh Rasmussen, right now, and we're looking at disinformation, in particular Russian disinformation and the role it played in the US election in 2016, also in the Brexit referendum, and across much of the Western liberal world. We do this in the context of looking at how the Western alliance is being broken down and how democracy itself is being threatened. So... Yes, there needs to be a social media auditor, but also we need to become aware of the fact that the networks and the ways in which we communicate have changed. And this type of propaganda, because it is propaganda, is aimed to make you more entrenched in your worldview. So you have these cognitive dissonance chambers. We've already talked about how polarized the debate is on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, it just enforces those. And therefore, I think that If people, we'll see this with Brexit as well, people do not, there is no distinguish, you can't distinguish between reality and uh, what's real and fake anymore. And people just believe what they want to believe. Mm. And I think that that needs to be um, in the answer to however we want to approach this. The fact that reality has become a very blurred line and many people will simply exist in the world which they want to believe is true. And as you've said on TV, and actually it's in um, Nina's pinned tweet on her Twitter feed, and I think everyone should go and have a look at it. 
fascism doesn't come goose stepping into your front room with a small moustache. I think that you know that's such a, a, an accurate line. This is the 21st century version of that shift to the far right and the tactics that they're employing and the campaigns that are there every day, slowly, slowly, slowly grinding away at us until they've won. Well, this just brings me back to, to, to the question I asked. How do we regulate our way out of this? Yeah. Because it's a cultural thing. You know, it, it, dark ads are pushing out mm. an open door, aren't they? They're showing you what will reinforce, as you said, Dana, what will reinforce what you already believe. How do we regulate our way out of this? So... We've you know, we've seen lots of people, uh, even even elected uh, MPs, uh, present company definitely accepted from this, vilify the regulators by uh, coming out and defending um, people like Darren Grimes and his crowdfunder for his his legal case to try and fight against his being referred to the the, the police um, over over fraud allegations. Um, they're not allegations. Well, no, not no, 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 so, 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 no, he is, he has been found guilty of two hmm. things. He has been referred to the police on a third uh-huh. thing. Uh, and and that's it, that, that is the bit that is an allegation, but you're quite right, the first two, he's guilty of. But I think, you know, so people are just vilifying the regulators. And what we really need, and probably before we set up any kind of new regulator, whether it's a social media regulator, uh, or off, off Twitter, or off, off book, off or whatever it is, yeah. um, we probably need statute law adjustment to recognise electoral commission regulations uh, you know because we know the deficiencies in the law and there's a real limit to what the electoral commission can really do without statute backing and so a new regulator might not you know yeah. it, needs I mean, the, the, it needs the right muscle attached I, to it, I think it's it? important I think nobody should think that the public are daft the public do know that there is lots of misinformation out there they know that perhaps not everything that you can read on the internet is entirely accurate what is happening is a filtering. So people are less and less likely to be exposed to alternative views. So actually, it's not that people aren't capable of spotting when something maybe is a bit shonky. It's that the cumulative impact of only seeing that material yeah. and, and the way in which the algorithms work in the, the programmes to make that happen. So people, you have to make a conscious effort now. If you think about when I were a kid, we had four TV channels. Everybody was pretty much watching the same thing at the same time because you couldn't, you couldn't have Sky Plus and record it all. Um, so you had collective moments mm. where you were having a common conversation about something at which you would hear different views because there were different views. Now, you could just argue that those different views weren't given full platforms because what's great about social media is that you can go out and reach out to people who share a common view who you wouldn't have met otherwise. Um, That's very different to now where people without thinking are able to choose and specify stuff. Mm, So regulating within that environment, I think, has to be twofold. It's not that the public are sort of not unthinking about this stuff it's that their opportunity to hear a range of voices Mm. is being restricted by the way in which the technology works what we can learn from ireland is about where the companies can intervene when they recognize things are breaching electoral law and i could be look i got up in parliament last week and said right hang on on the vote leave board are a number of government ministers Mm. we've now Mm. got a police investigation Mm. surely they should recuse themselves from Mm. government Mm. until that Mm. police investigation is Mm. completed because if Mm. they are found to be implicated in criminal activity Mm. lawmakers shouldn't be lawbreakers that's a very different issue from is the public being given the opportunity to to set their own preferences about what they see and hear so that actually you do hear a diversity of views, you yeah. do hear more of the collective conversation. Related to that, on just what Nomi just mentioned, the, this Darren Grimes business mm. of his crowdfunder, you're an MP. Is it acceptable that MPs like Lucy Allen, Priti Patel and Nedine Dorries are undermining the institution that protects everybody's vote by lending their support to a crowdfunder 
whose person who's launched it is attacking the credibility of the Electoral Commission. His backers and his... The the honest truth right now is that Parliament can't lecture anybody on credibility when it comes to playing fair. We've just had a Parliament... We've got a government that has abused the pairing system to be able to get Mm -hmm. votes through. Absolutely. We had a session about this Vote Leave report and the government said... Well, well, when I asked about the the police Mm -hmm. report, they said, oh, we haven't said there's a police report. And I was like, you've literally just Mm -hmm. told us there's going to be a police Mm -hmm. investigation. Mm -hmm. Um, No, I don't think it's right. I think it is very worrying because, you know, the Electoral Commission has to be independent Mm. necessarily to be Mm. part of our democracy. And I think some of this people have to worry about because you have to be able to trust that the rules are being fairly applied. And, Mm. And I am not sitting here saying that there aren't people whose views I would support who haven't also like that. Nobody is perfect, but there is a big difference between. Um, when the Electoral Commission, as an independent organisation, steps in and says, this is wrong, laws have been broken, a police investigation needs to take place, and feeling frustrated that somebody else had a better campaign idea than you. And at the moment, the two are being put on equivalence, and that's really worrying. But the thing that is also really worrying is the fact that the attack on the credibility of the institution, be it the Electoral Commission, or the person, be it... Uh, it you know, it's go for the person and institutional credibility first, rather than the argument. Nobody on the vote leave side stood up and said, we think this investigation is flawed for the following reasons. They said, it's a biased Remain Commission. Nina, you, we have a system <laughs> that runs here, supposedly on the application of shame. You should not do that. And that seems to be breaking down. It's very interesting because obviously when you look at uh, British recent history, uh, you look uh, compared to the history on the continent, they look at, you know, the fascist dictatorships in the 1930s, what happened on the continent. And there's this pervasive belief that that couldn't happen here in the Mm. United Kingdom because Mm. we're far too sensible for that. And look at us. We are, you know, the birthplace of modern democracy. And every time as a German throughout the last two years after the referendum, when some party, some institution or some person has been attacked for standing up for the very, you know, uh, this parliamentary democracy for parliamentary yeah. sovereignty, how they've been dragged through the mud and singled out. I mean, when mm. the enemies of the people um, mm. front page came out as a German, you know, that was absolutely horrifying. So this is something that we see repeatedly over the past few years, you know, whether it's an electoral commission, whether it's a judge, whether it's MPs. And I think people don't, because that's almost become so normalized, it's almost as though people don't realize just how pernicious that is. Mm. And of course, that has already happened. And as a German, we know from our history that that's a very dangerous slide into fascism and totalitarianism. It's a very interesting word. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called Schadenfreude. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I might have heard that. <laughs> I heard it a lot when Germany got kicked out of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to admit, I was, I, I'm on the Council of Europe and mm. you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of the language you hear there, we, we have now some very far right. We have the German, uh, the German ARD, we have the Five Star Movement there and I'm on the Refugee Committee. So some of the things I listen to and hear them mm-hmm. say are absolutely toxic. Um and that language is seeping into the British debate. And so actually, if people somehow think that letting Brexit happen will lance that boil, they don't understand this is not about Brexit. Mm. It's about Bannon. It's about a coordinated and organised language and rhetoric. I get called a traitor all the time now on Twitter. I've had it in letters. Mm. The person who killed my friend Joe Cox used Mm. that language. Mm. Words have meaning. Mm. What I think hasn't happened is an understanding that if you... If you accept the premise of that argument, so we have President Trump coming here and telling us that immigration has been a bad thing for Europe as an immigrant himself. I mean, you couldn't yeah. you couldn't be more hypocritical. Um, and we normalise that. Then actually what happens is slowly but surely it bleeds in that it is acceptable to think of somebody who's fighting for what they believe in. You might not agree with them, but that doesn't make them a traitor. But that has now become a normalised 
version. I have to admit, though, when we were in the Council of Europe and Germany were knocked out, I was quite pleased to tell the ARD MP that. <laughs> but that was... did, you, did you say you lost get over it? I, I may have been very clear about what the score was. <laughs> OK, let's move on from one depressing subject to another, to those no-deal preparation documents that the government was going to dribble out over the summer and then decided they were just too frightening to release. The government has insisted that companies who see the advice sign non-disclosure agreements to stop them leaking. A report in the Sunday Times quoted a source as saying people will shit themselves and think they want a new referendum or an election or think the Tory party shouldn't govern again. Yes, we told you that. The source added MPs are saying if this is done badly, it could hurt us like Sleaze did in the 1990s. So the documents may well be dumped into the public domain on two separate days in August and September to minimise panic. Meanwhile, after last week's fun with food hoarding, we're now told the army is being made ready to deliver food and medicines in the event of no deal. Naomi, you're inside the Bassa Britain engine room. Are these are these warnings starting to move the needle yet? Uh, well, um, yes. So I think I've said it a few times in the podcast. For a long while after the vote in 2016, we were in this sort of phony war where the people who had been involved in Project Fear, as it had been labelled, um, were you know having fingers pointed at them, being said, ah, see, you said it was all going to be awful and it isn't yet. But of course the pain was always going to take a while to come through. It was going to take a while for inflation to really begin to hurt people's pockets. It was going to take a while um, for, for, for jobs to move and things like that. But we did see earlier this year a huge swing towards Remain in Northern Ireland when there was this very, very persistent focus on the Irish border. So where there was a very tangible thing about what Brexit meant when there was living memory of that border having been hard and militarised and, uh, and, and policed, when you had uh, dignitaries from Dublin, from Brussels, from Westminster going and physically inspecting it, people were waking up and realising, ah, shit, this is what Brexit means. And once they realised what it meant, they decided they didn't like it. With food, we're now beginning to see this. With, with, with inflation, with people's summer holidays... All of this is now starting to sharpen minds around what Brexit actually does mean for people, and we're seeing the polls moving. So it's this sort of end of this phony war. Lots of uh, car manufacturing jobs going. We've seen lots of banking jobs being announced as having actually moved this week as well, um, uh, and, and people, uh, you know, seeing that fruit is actually rotting in the fields mm. as well. So yeah, people are are moving ever closer to remain as it becomes clearer what Brexit is going to mean for them. Stella, have you started stockpiling lentils yet? Stockpiling <laughs> tin tomatoes and things? Wolf are still very um, good for that kind of thing. I, uh, I've always described Brexit as being like the 5-2 diet. So people <laughs> kind of read about it in the papers and they're curious about it and they think, well, like, you know, I need to lose a bit of weight. And by midday on the first day they try it, they're hangry because they're starving <laughs> and they've realised what's actually entailed. Um, being serious about it, I, I don't want any of this to happen because fundamentally it's communities like mine that will bear the brunt of it the hardest. Mm. And I mean, like that was the other night when I turned on telly and there was somebody on Newsnight discussing whether or not there would be sandwiches after Brexit because of the ingredients shortage. And you sort of think this, this sounds funny, but it's not. Mm. It's not actually funny. It's very serious now. Um, the consequences will be felt in the poorest communities with the most challenges because we are the communities that are most affected by the impact on jobs, the impact on the economy, the impact on the opportunities that come from being part of the European Union. We're also the communities that have probably had to deal with the challenges of being part of the European Union as well. So we know full well what, what the, 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 the balance ledger is. And I think 
now people are starting to hear it. I mean, I had a, I had a guy came to my surgery on Sunday and he said, you can't be serious. And I was like, no, no, they, they are serious. They are serious about the army. They are serious about stockpiling medicines. They are serious mm. about the idea that the M26 will become a lorry car park. Mm. It sounds so fantastical until you start realising what it will mean for you and your family and your job. So we're talking about even if they manage to get what people call a soft Brexit, a £500 cost to every single family in this country, suddenly the numbers and the reality, and I think many of us who are involved in the campaign to remain in the first place have to take responsibility and be humble about the fact that we weren't able to show people that at that point, and now the risk is very real... We need to be clear with people about what those risks are. And mm. it's not its not project fear. It is a brutal reality, reality mm. of what could happen. You'll be unsurprised then that my next question is, why is Labour not really hammering this when it sounds to individual MPs like this? Why are the commanding heights of Labour not recognising so that? I, I, I think that's a bit tough. I mean, the, the, the Labour leadership has been very clear that no deal should not be an option. There is a debate absolutely within the Labour movement, and I've been clear myself you know I stood on in the 2017 election and had all over my literature I'm going to fight for membership of the customs union membership of the single market I think the public should get another say because the idea that 650 people in a place that looks like Hogwarts gone wrong mm. could understand and, and make the final decision for 65 million people seems crazy to me there is a debate going on within the labour movement the great thing about the labour movement it's like a guy it was one of my predecessors of Waltham Memphis MP a guy called Clem Attlee you might have heard of him <laughs> Clem Attlee said that the labour movement is what its members make of it so if people want the labour movement to be in a different place they want the labour movement to have a particular policy we have conferences we have motions and delegates and things that's how you change it and the leadership has to be guided by the members because it is a democratic movement so it becomes this sort of chicken and egg syndrome where the leadership is looking to the members the members are looking to the leaders and people like me are in the middle going do you know what we've had two years of this it's very clear there isn't a magic unicorn on the way that can fix all of this so this is where i'm at but people like me have to win that argument within the labour movement as well. But in the real world, you have a very there particular... There are no unicorns. Well, you have a very particular leader and you now have a very particular membership. They are... This is what you've just described as a kind of beautiful open debating society. You have a leadership and a mm-hmm. membership that is extremely doctrinaire. They really I, no, I, they don't think, I don't think that's fair, actually. We've always... I mean, look, I've... Frankly, I've been in the Labour Party for 25 years. Right, I've never entirely agreed with any Labour leader uh-huh. and I've always campaigned for every Labour leader. I'm a woman who knows my own mind and I've found a home in the Labour movement and I've, I've lost arguments and I've won arguments. There is a live debate going on within the Labour movement right now about how do you respond in an environment where no deal is a very real um, possibility but also any deal is not going to be as good for this country as the current system that we have, that there is yeah. going to be a cost to any form of Brexit. My point is that that can't be the choice of one person alone, even if they are the leader of the Labour movement, by the nature of the kind of movement that we are. It's up to everyone to be part of that conversation. That conversation is happening. If people want to change the Labour Party's position, they need to get involved because, you know, you're not going to change it from a distance. Well, this is something I was going to bring up later, but maybe we should talk about it now. There's there's a, a, a seems to be a strong movement within momentum to start taking Brexit seriously. Yeah. It used to be, don't talk about it. Jeremy doesn't want to talk about it. Constructive ambiguity, we're not having it. Now we've got a lot of momentum branches, groupings, pushing to get sure. Brexit Big petition into debate for the yeah, conference. Yeah. Do you think that that is more likely to lead Labour to more of a... Well, and I, so again, I don't, I don't think you're being fair on Jeremy and Keir and Co, because mm. a lot of those conversations are happening. Look, part of it, because we're not in government, mm. is just dealing with the craziness 
of the government. If you've had Jacob Rees-Mogg and David Davis and Boris Johnson for the last two and a half years, as we have had, leading those conversations in Parliament, part of what you're trying to do is trying to contain the madness and trying to get some answers. You know, two years of every time you ask a question of the Prime Minister, you just get Brexit means Brexit means Brexit mm-hmm. means breakfast means Brexit. Drives <laughs> you crazy. Yeah. Um, Absolutely, there are people within... It cuts across different parts of the it party. Does. I would say every member has a vote, at all of us. I'm, I'm just one vote as well. I've been very clear what I think is right, not just for Walthamstow, but for the country. But I have to win that argument just as everybody else has to win that argument. The point is the argument is there to be made. Was Corbyn wrong to ask for the activation of Article 50 quickly, well, immediately? I, I, I voted against Article 50 because mm. in eight years of being an MP, a piece of legislation that's four lines wrong, long, you got to worry because you think, mm, mm. no. And I fear, and I think we are going to get to the place where we probably do need to see Article 50 extended to be able to have any sanity on any of this right now because of all the chaos. Um, so I, I didn't agree. No, I thought that Article 50 was the wrong thing to trigger at that time and I voted accordingly. Yeah. Is, are the mutterings about a centrist party being planned helpful at all in sharpening Jeremy Corbyn's focus on Brexit? Or is it just a major distraction? Listen, I'm I'm a socialist. I say I've been in the Labour Party for 25 years. I've lost arguments. I've won arguments. I lost arguments on payday lending to begin with. What that teaches you is you have to go away and come up with a better argument to win the argument. There is a very good socialist progressive reason Mm. why we need to fight what's happening now on Brexit, because it will be bigger than a recession and the austerity it will bring to people in this country will be horrific. There will be thousands of jobs lost. Mm. Prices will go through the Mm. roof. Mm. The social and economic division that we're going Mm. to see, that is a socialist progressive cause and people like me have mm. to come up with better arguments to be able to win that case and people who are listening who are Labour members need to get involved mm. Nina, one point everybody seems to have missed on the whole sort of contingency, no deal what's going to happen thing, is that Barnier rejected the Chequers formula anyway killed it stone dead, so we're arguing <laughs> we're literally arguing about a dead parrot here. Yeah, th- this is so amazing to me sometimes when I look at the political debate in this country, it's like a couple arguing about whether they want to buy the 50,000 house or the 70,000 pound house and Where's the 70,000 pound <laughs> house? And it costs 150,000 <laughs> Well, you get my point yeah. um, You know, there, there are other 27 other countries involved in this negotiation and they have decided a common position, they've agreed that Michel Barnier and his task force is the one that's going to carry it out. You know, uh, Theresa May was humiliated when at one of the last UCOs, she was told by Angela Merkel and other European leaders to please stop bringing up Brexit, you know, because they had (laughs) much bigger issues to discuss, the migration crisis being one of them, Russian interference being another. Um, And could she please go to Michel Barnier, who, you know, the 27 had instructed to negotiate with her. Um, So, yes, what what has happened with Theresa May's checkers plan is that, of course, the EU hasn't shot it down because they also don't want a no-deal Brexit. They're using it as a place to start negotiating. But make no mistake, there will have to be further concessions. So what Theresa May is saying is her uh, solution is just a negotiating position, a place to start negotiating. And um, let's not forget that as the clock winds down, in order for there to be an Article 50 extension, the 27 other member states would have to agree unanimously And what has been so surprising, perhaps, to the British side throughout these negotiations is that the 27 have been very tight. You know, their position, the UK going in, decided that they would try to divide and conquer, right? Like, Mm -hmm. they traditionally have done this very well. (laughs) And the commission was quite afraid, actually, you know, that, you know, the British diplomats, because they're known to be very crafty and very good, might succeed. But they haven't been able to do that well. 
the British cabinet cannot even come united behind one position at all. Mm. And that's going to continue. And the reason why is not because they want to punish the UK or they hate the UK, but because it's in their strategic interest to be together on this. And we're going to continue to see that. So it's like the political cockroach that just keeps coming back. You know, this idea (laughs) that we'll go over the head of Michel Barnier direct to Merkel or Macron, which I think is what's Mm. happening again this week. And it's just ludicrous from the European uh, Union's, <laughs> from, from the perspective of European leaders, because they give their orders to mm. Michel Barnier. So that's just let's... Can, You can make an amazing mental image of Theresa May in some <laughs> cocktail bar with the, with the leaders just going, yeah, but Brexit. And they'll go, oh, God, here we go again. Yeah. <laughs> you, you laugh. It's exactly like that yeah. in the, the Council of Europe. Yeah. I mean, actually, mm. what's been really quite sobering over the last year or so is Les Anglais, mm. as we all get called, uh-huh. much to the chagrin of my Scottish and Welsh. Uh, colleagues are just being sidelined because we're, we're already gone to mm, them and we, yeah. we are the difficult uncle that you've had to have over for Christmas for years and years and years mm. and finally he's divorced the, the the woman who was part of your family so you can say to him you're not coming mm. um, and and one of the reasons people like I have, have chosen to be part of the Council of Europe is to try and present a different picture of of a country that does want to work with its neighbours, that actually does recognise that basically walking into negotiations, like it's like if you're a member of a gym and you were like, actually, um, I'd like not to pay a gym fee, but I'd like to still use the swimming pool. I'd like to sometimes bring my family and have private sessions in there and I'd like you guys to all to clean it. Is that OK? Mm. Oddly enough, the gym organisers kind of go, uh, no. And then we're left there going, well, they're being unreasonable. Yeah. Actually, we have to change our approach to working with our colleagues across Europe full stop because we've all got these shared interests in our, and there isn't that, that language there. So why do we expect them to care as much about us as we care about them? Getting a bit late in the day for that, though, isn't oh, it? Oh, I agree. And look, uh, you know, oh, yeah. whether you ask about the Labour Party or ask about the Conservative Party, there isn't a cavalry coming. The British mm. public need to be clear about what they mm. want for their future. Mm. The people's vote to me is the is the simplest way of resolving that. But it's also important that people are engaged. They're not sitting around just on Twitter or on Facebook going, yeah. well, that looks rubbish. They're mm. actually engaged in the political process, in the democratic process, mm. not in the shouting people down process, because we've got 12 weeks to kind of change the course of this country. No pressure, folks. But yeah. you know, stop listening Great. to podcasts She's and talking get out about you, <laughs> right, right, yeah, Finally, just quickly, this one. Stella, this is right up your street. Stella Street. Come with us. That's a shocking pun. It is shocking. shocking pun. It's the only reason I invited you on the show. You're a bit ashamed, aren't you? (laughs) Come with us, listeners, back to the barmy days of New Labour and their plans for a national ID card. After eight years of controversy and £5 billion spent, the Coalition cancelled David Blunkett's scheme in 2010, and it was pretty much the only decent thing they did. But now the centre-right think tank Policy Exchange is calling for ID cards to be resurrected as part of the Brexit arrangements for settled status for EU citizens. If extended to UK citizens on a voluntary basis, as well as EU residents, it would enable better management of benefits and control of illegal immigration, they say. Stella. Walthamstow is a multicultural area. Immigration issues are important to you. You absolutely. But also, so are civil liberties. I've always been against uh, ID cards because I think they're a very expensive distraction from actually what you can do to make sure. Look, uh, we have have, Hmm. we have people coming from the. Um, the UKBA doing random raids in my community as well and that's been really worrying because it's not mm. not intelligence based there are plenty of intelligence reports to be able to tackle people yep. who are exploiting people and trafficking that is not randomly turning up at my station as they have done in the past and yeah. stopping people mm-hmm. frankly they don't stop people who look like me yeah. I've been extremely worried by the behaviour of yep. the Home Office mm-hmm. in this way and we've now seen it in the hostile environment Exactly, uh, the, like the, 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 uh, the Policy Exchange mentioned that oh, it might have helped us um, prevent the harassment of the Windrush generation but so would the Home Office not being 
you know, a bunch of evil bastards consciously <laughs> creating a hostile environment. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, yeah. basically it's sort of saying that it would be ID cards for non-Brits because let's remember the Windrush generation are British people. So then I'm thinking, well, is what they're really saying is that this is ID cards for non-white people? Uh, well, and also look, the technology yeah, has moved on to such an extent that mm. you can actually... Try. I mean, we all already carry an ID card, pretty much most of us in London, because we carry uh, an, an Oyster card, which tracks mm. your movements and tracks your payments and actually does give quite a lot of information about you. So I think all of us need to have a better understanding about what data is being held about us full stop. But the mm. idea that ID cards are somehow a way of addressing crime, that the evidence just doesn't stack it up. It's always been that way, and, and Brexit doesn't change that. Mm. Nina, the rest of Europe has ID cards all over the place. What are we so, what are we so hung up about? Yeah, I think the idea that only migrants should have it is like obviously highly contentious. And um, as somebody who is an EU migrant to this country, I've lived here 13 years. You know, I came here when I was 18. I spent my entire adult life here and I wasn't even allowed to have a vote in the referendum, even though I was working in the heart of Westminster Mm. at a think tank. you know, making a commitment to this country and, uh, you know, I'm in love with this country for, uh, even though I've seen some of its nastier sides. Uh, It's it's just simply, you know, at some point, people like myself would just be like, well... Why? Why would we want to stay if you're going to treat us like this? I mean, it, I I had my residency rejected on a technical reason because I didn't have comprehensive sickness insurance, which was a little loophole that the Home Office brought in, where mm. it said that if you were a student, you needed to have private health insurance, which wasn't, you know, NHS. And at the time, obviously, I didn't know that. So. At that point, I decided I'm not going to go through with this again. I'm not going to go through the whole residency requirement again. And if it turns out after the dust has settled that I can't live in this country, then I'm you know, quite happy to leave. But you've only just come on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. well, what are we going to do? I, this, uh, Jack Straw used to say that there were two divides in Parliament, the left and right, and also those who had to deal with the UKBA and those who didn't. What I would say from my casework, already EU citizens are yep. being issued with something which is basically like an ID card. And I've had mm-hmm. people in tears to me in my local community People who've lived there for generations mm. suddenly feeling that they don't know what their status is and they're being issued with bits of paper mm. that actually they don't quite know what credibility that has and what that does because the Home Office is already sending people mm. what is essentially an ID card. I think all of us need to be very clear. Look, you know, I'm having a meeting tonight because we've got a real problem with gun crime and gang crime in Walthamstow. We're really short of police. And if no deal happens, we've got to have 5,000 more uh, customs guards. I would love that money to go into policing. I would love that money that at the moment is being spent on Brexit and all the preparations, billions of pounds mm. to go into the public services that actually help all of us. And I actually mm. think there's people, whether you voted leave or remain, who will just be mm. looking at the numbers for this and thinking, what are you doing? Not what are you playing and, and And what problem does it solve that, yeah. that something else... Can't, so, you know, all the Madrid bombers had ID cards... Everyone involved in terrorism in 9-11 had some kind of identification scheme attached to them. Um, Our successive governments have not controlled, reduced immigration from beyond the EU 27 because it would have been economically a really, really bad idea thing to do. So I just I don't really see beyond, you know, costing a huge amount of money what this scheme would do what, what it would solve. I, I, that, be very, I can't want to, tackle, I want to tackle illegal immigration because a lot of it's to do with trafficking and exploitation. A piece of paper doesn't do that. Exactly. Intelligence-led border operations exactly. do. We absolutely need borders, but how you make them work and work in a modern way is nothing to do with a piece of paper. Mm. So that's a no then. <laughs> 
Right, after this summer, you might think you've had quite enough of sun and sea, but be honest, you'd be lying to yourself. There's still time to exercise your freedom of movement before Rhysmog takes it away, and we suggest a late summer trip to Greece with the help of our friends at Everymatic, the boutique Greek travel concierge that everyone can afford, and their supporters of the podcast. Greece in September is the choice for the smart Romaniac. Air prices are much cheaper because all the kids have gone back to school, and our mate Alex at Everymatic can find you amazing hidden gems on the Dodecanese, the Cyclonic Islands, the Peloponnese, whatever you fancy. Athens itself is an absolutely thrilling place to visit. The Acropolis Museum will blow your mind and make you feel very guilty that Britain is hanging on to those Elgin marbles. Food is some of the most exciting in all of Europe. The new Stavros Niarchos Art Centre is really worth a visit. It's basically one of the great European capitals and you have to go. Every Matic can build a bespoke holiday to suit exactly what you want, whether it's city culture or food or islands or antiquities or any combination of the above. And they can work with any budget because boutique holidays should be for the many, not the few. Tittering from the MPs in the background. There's still time to set up the best holiday you'll ever have, so drop Alex a line. The email address is alex at everymatic.com. That's every and M-A-T-I-C. Tell a Romaniac sent you, and don't forget to send us a postcard. Couldn't have her on the show without a bit of the wedding present. That was Love Nest from Sea Monsters, which I believe is your favourite Widows album, Stella? Uh, sea Monsters. I actually wrote the sleeve notes for the reissue mm. of it, which was probably one of the highlights of my um, career, generally. Generally, being, asked, being asked by David Gage to write about being a 15-year-old who got knocked back time and time again and sitting in my bedroom listening to, to Sea Monsters being miserable about Aww. it. <laughs> is it possible to keep up with the, the indie rock when you're an MP? Keep on board with it. The thing, people ask me about this all the time. Look, I've, I've liked music. Well, I don't care what anybody else thinks about it because nobody else gets their hands on my stereo or decides what's on my Spotify. Mm. It's just my personal choice of music and I don't care whether you think it makes me cool or not. I, you know, it's nice when I see people at gigs who are fan, yeah. fellow fans and I, I like my music jangly and I don't think kids these days understand it. They use the vocoder far too much. But, but I don't care what people oh, think. I'm, Sorry. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying it makes sure I'm cool. I'm just wondering how you keep I, on top of I, it. I, because I, I watch a... what I like. It's like I watch loads and loads of trash not mm. because I'm an MP, just because I'm a human being who likes to be entertained. Yeah. I like good music, and what I think of good music, I'm a terrible music snob, but it does involve floppy hair and staring at my feet shoes when I dance, or in a mosh pit. <laughs> who are your current new favourites? Current new? Oh, well, oh, OK, so I have to say Ten Fay, who are a band from Walthamstow, who I think are about to make it mm. uh, very big. They're quite floaty, though. They're very good. I think they're going to be big kind of stadium rockers and we were talking before about Suede's got a new album out and I'm sure that's great and also James has got a new album out Mm -hmm. as well I've got tickets for the Teenage Fan Club gig that's coming up too which and I'm hoping that they're going to be everything that I dreamed they would be right quick see the Scottish bands before the UK breaks up (laughs) now we we sort of touched on this earlier Um, you know we're talking about the the stick you get on social media you were on uh, you talked about Love Island on I was uh, and then the tweets come in going, like, why are you watching television when you should be an MP? At 10 o'clock at night. You have to unwind at some point, don't you? Well, but also some of this is and it is very gendered because it's how dare you know your own yeah. mind. And look, one of the reasons why I think it's so important that all of us stand up right now 
is because I don't want to live in Gilead and I'm pretty sure most of your <laughs> listeners don't want to live in it. But that's the way we're heading. We're heading towards a level of totalitarianism control. And if people don't think that that's going to be about inequality, they don't understand what mm. totalitarian is. And it starts with, uh, although frankly it was a member of Momentum who then sent me a list of TV programmes, it was acceptable oh, good. for me to watch. Oh, right. What would they but be? It, starts, it was a long... And also included like the People versus O.J. Simpson, which to me was quite a trashy programme. So I was like, <laughs> OK, so you have a problem with Love Island and you have a problem with This Morning. But listen, you know, part of the challenge in our democracy right now is that people do think MPs are from the planet Zog. If you behave like the person in a decision-making process is, uh, you know, in an impossible position and must be a weirdo, then you're probably going to get only the people who would like to be that person to be that. I think you Hmm. want normal human beings trying to do that for all their faults, for all their benefits. Across Parliament, most MPs are decent people trying to do right by their communities. They have different ideas about what that means. Our political culture right now is so toxic that it doesn't bring out the best in people. But if we want it to be better and we want to make better decisions, we all need to be a bit kinder to each other and a bit more forgiving of the fact that at 10 o'clock at night, people are going to be watching a bit of trash telly. I dared to um, make a point about uh, Love Island and Brexit while I was watching Love Island and got so much abuse from Love Island fans saying, how dare you bring politics into this? We're just trying to watch some telly. And it's like, oh, you've come into but my feed is, to say that. Is that and because it, you basically compared Alex to Boris Johnson? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more of the a... The man like, who complete, com- continually kept messing up with women and they knew he was going to, and yet they still... Like, there just seemed to be some cross It wasn't, but it should have been. It was probably something to do with more like, you know, Danny Dyer... And him coming out for a main and his daughter being brilliant and won't it be awful if we can't go to Mallorca next summer without a visa? And <laughs> how dare I, you know, conflate the two. But yeah, it's uh, it's it's vitriolic out there on, on both sides. Those who think that you shouldn't be watching Trash TV and those who love Trash TV and think that you shouldn't be talking about politics in the same breath. Mm. You've come out for people's vote. You've mentioned yeah. earlier on the show that, you, that you're pro-it. What form do you, do you think it ought to take? What's most likely to get something that's going to satisfy so, the whole country? Well, so I actually I have a different take on how we get there because I think there are lessons to be learned from the Irish referendum where actually they had a citizen's jury that looked at the different issues and came up with suggestions about what the way forward should be. So I would actually have a citizen's jury to decide what the questions should be. I have my own personal mm. preferences for the sort of questions that should be in there. But one of the things I think has been missing from this process is I, I believe in the British public. The British public are not daft. They've got lots of common sense, but we never actually ask them to bring that to that process. We say only a small number of people can make decisions. I come from the co-op as well as the Labour Party background, and I think a citizen's jury about what the mm. question could be would be a really positive way forward. And, and earlier you talked about how well Ireland had run mm. their recent referendum, and a lot of that, as I understand it, you know, it had had that sort of citizens' assembly feel to yeah. it. They had town hall meetings. There was a lot of education done before the vote. Um, yeah. You know, the state was very involved in making sure that that people didn't vote until they were pretty, at least had a chance to to get themselves pretty well informed. Do you sort of see as, as that being a, a necessary step before Look, we had another? I, I, I'm, I'm a I'm a big fan of participation generally because I think the public are grown-ups. That's the reason why I'm doing a meeting tonight with 160... I always say I'm your worst nightmare as your MP because I'm going to get you involved, but that's how I know change happens. Our political culture doesn't do that right now on any issue. I don't think people... I'm very, very wary of anyone who suggests that people who voted in the last referendum 
were stupid, didn't know what they were doing, because I don't think that anybody really knew the full implications. No. We do now. Whether you voted Leave or Remain then, it doesn't matter. What matters now is what's before us and whether people feel that is the best deal for Britain. And I trust the British public that if actually they were given an opportunity to decide those questions, they can make good choices. I believe in the wisdom of the British public. And I think sometimes in politics it sounds like we don't. Mm. It sounds like we think the public aren't capable of doing our job. Everybody is capable of doing my job. Very few people would probably want the long hours and the grief about what you watch on telly. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> what you just described sounds lovely and really attractive and wouldn't it be great if we could come together and place our trust in a people's jury that can come back to us with options. <laughs> but an article of faith on the Leave side is that people were in full knowledge of what they voted for and they positively voted for what they are now getting. To get to that point requires the other side to accept that there was some confusion, that there was a lack of understanding, and they are stonewall against that. How did we get past that? Actually, no, I don't think that at all. Look, I think the the easiest argument to have, whether you were a Leave or a Remainer two years ago, was to say, right, is this now the deal you wanted? Because if it's the deal you wanted, brilliant, vote for it. Mm -hmm. To trust the public to be able to come up with the question is about understanding that public's trust in the ability of Parliament to write questions isn't there. So it's to recognise that using a citizen's jury to look at what the options are for the wording, which has been one of those sensitive subjects, is a way of bringing the public into that conversation. And again, whether you vote leave or remain, it's a different question about whether you trust the public to be able to make good decisions. I mm. trust the British public. They don't always make decisions that I like. For goodness sake, they didn't vote the right way in the last election, All of, enough of them as far as I'm concerned. But that's democracy. If you are supportive of participation, you are supportive of people's ability to contribute and their responsibility to do so. One of the things that comes up time and again on this podcast is what's Britain going to look like after this has all settled down? be it in 5, 10, 20 years. What's our political settlement going to be like if we get through this this crisis having accepted that representative democracy doesn't do the job? If we're using things like citizenship juries... So, look, people have never trusted politicians in my entire life. Go back and look at the Hogarth drawings. Hmm. Um, and I got elected in 2010 post the expenses uh, scandal, so I still have people in the pub saying to me, is that on expenses? Now what I think is happening is that people don't trust politicians, even if they could believe those individuals, to make a difference. So part of this is about that bigger challenge about how do you show how change happens. And that's a real responsibility of people like me who passionately believe in the power of collective action to do that, to show how we do that and do that in different ways. Our political process does have to change. I do work in a place that looks like Hogwarts, where if you come, if you go to the German parliament, it says for the people above the door, you come to the British parliament and we call you strangers. One of the things I've, I've consistently said, we're about to move out of parliament because the building is literally falling down. That's an opportunity to move out of that mindset that only a small number of people can make decisions. Because the other flip side of this is if we treat people like toddlers and babies, then why are we surprised when actually all they do is scream and shout? I, I say I treat the public in Walthamstow. I have a lot of respect for. I don't baby them. I say, right, we've got to make some difficult choices. Here's the information. Here's the option. That's about the process that you use to involve people. But there are processes out there that we could use. Part of it is about the political will and the courage to say, let's do things differently. Let's not set up 650 people to fail all the time, because oddly enough, then we fail. Before we wrap up, I've got a couple of questions from listeners. Michael <laughs> Is it about the, the wedding present? Actually, one of them yeah. is. Michael is it, is it about? Because I often get a lot of grief from people about um, George Best and why that's not my favourite album. And I do love, uh, obviously, but Sea Monsters is, is my boo. Well, Michael Farrell asks, is Gedge a Remainer? 
I don't know. I, I'm every time I've met David, I'm always overcome because he is obviously one of my childhood heroes. He's he's doing fantastic work to support um, refugee rights. Actually, and mm-hmm. I don't think people realise that about him. Um, so he, he, he's definitely somebody trying to change the world for better, as well as writing brilliant angry lyrics for grumpy teenagers. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I wouldn't like to, to prejudge. Okay. We can, we can cross our fingers, though. Yeah, we're he's, kind of... he's very active on Twitter, so someone should just ask him on Twitter. OK. Um, we'll... But I hate it when people speak for me, so I'd never speak for somebody else. Fair enough. And listener Jack Staines asks, if you're running the Labour Party, what will be done differently regarding Brexit? <laughs> I don't want to run the Labour Let's be very, very clear. Well, like, you wanted to be deputy being leader. Being Stone. <laughs> yeah, and I wanted to be deputy leader because I felt that Labour should be a movement, not a machine. And actually, frankly, I still think there are challenges about how we involve people because... Mm. Oscar Wilde was right. The problem with socialism is it takes too many evenings. At the moment, we ask people to go and sit. And I am asking people to go and sit, especially around Brexit, in that conversation. But it is quite a long process. Um, Listen, I've been very clear where I stand on Brexit. I can't see a good way of getting to that deal. But I respect the fact that there are different views in the party right now and that we need to win that argument. I guess what I would like to see is that debate happening. And certainly, I don't want to go through another Labour Party conference where we don't talk about Brexit because I just it's the biggest issue facing our country mm-hmm. right now. And as socialists, we have a duty, I think, to challenge austerity in its many forms. And Brexit, to me, is a form of austerity. Well, we'll cross our fingers <laughs> that we will see you at Labour Party conference making loud points <laughs> and speaking. That's going to be likely. Uh, what if I'm going to go out to Liverpool? I've got to find somewhere to stay. Uh, I'm not. I'm not a delegate this year because the great thing about the Labour movement, you know, you might be an MP, but you've got to be a delegate to have a say in the in the conference process. That's a great leveller. That's a good thing, actually. Okay. You know, as my mother would say, never get too big for your boots. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the end of the show is looming like track six, side two of George Best, which is called "You Can't Moan, Can You." <laughs> which, of course, we do every week, which means it's time for the Brexit time capsule. Much like that dusty box of Campag Velocet and Tallulah Gosh seven inches under Stella's bed, it's where we put the things that we're going to miss if we leave the EU and also the things we might need if we're out on our own. This week, I'm taking back control. I'm going to choose something. Into the box goes WOMAD, which... Because of Brexit, performers are looking at the mm. visa process and deciding it's just not worth the faff. The message is going out that Britain is a difficult place to get into, or it's even closed, the promoter told Radio Times. We've had situations where, say, an African artist has been due to come who plays a particularly rare instrument, and we'll be asked, can you find someone in the UK who can play that instrument? So there you go. Another nice thing we can't have because some people don't like Polish plumbers. <laughs> Another thing going in the Brexit time capsule, but fear not, we can beat this. Uh, as you know, listeners, we need your EU language clips to finish the show. If you're fluent in one of the non-English languages of the community, then send us a short sound clip and we'll play it at the, at the end of the show. Email it to info at romaniacs.com and we're going to use the best ones. Here, with some sound effects, is Daniel Wrightson of invitation to Tuscany.com, non more remain, with some Tuscan dialect. E si sembra delle belle fave a the translation of that is, apparently, we seem some beautiful beans, yes, to leave Europe. We become extra communitarians and for what? To be poorer. And apparently beautiful beans means a bunch of dicks. So we seem a bunch of dicks to be leaving Europe. And that is the end of this week's show. Thanks to Nina and Naomi. Nina, did you enjoy your uh, your debut? I loved it. Splendid. <laughs> well, we'll have you back very soon. Um, and thanks to Stella Cruz MP. What's happening in Walthamstow this summer? Uh, well, hopefully we will be tackling the gang and gun crime that we have and we'll get the police to be able to do that. And we'll be doing a lot of youth mentoring because the kids in Walthamstow are rather special. We're a place that has not only produced Brian Harvey, but also Harry Kane, 
right. and oh. Fleur East. So we've got quite a lot of talent around my way of town and I'd like to do more to be able to make sure that people can see it. And you've also got the Wildcard Brewery, which I'm a huge fan we of. We have got the Wildcard Brewery. Sadly, it's also the place where they recorded the first Coldplay album, but we gloss over that. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell, thanks again, Stella, for coming in. And to finish up, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional roll call of our subversive Patreon backers. It's hello and thanks from me to James Middleton, Sean, Ian Elkin, Andrew Moss and the famously named Joe Broadway. And vielen Dank from me to Christine Oliver, Saskia, Ian Black, David Collins and Sam Bird. And finally, it's a big up and hold tight old Romaniac crew from me too, Joel Reich, Sean McLabry, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Jens Jacobson, Hannah Wood and the very DJ sounding Richard JJ. We'll see you all again next week. Remainax is presented by Naomi Smith and Nina Schick and produced by me, Andrew Harrison. Studio production was by Jack Claremont. Remainax is a Podmasters production.